0: Amen. If you stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We will start at the very end of verse 2, and we will read through verse 10. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll start at the end of verse 2. It says, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. Of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. That's what Paul wrote back in chapter 4, verse 8. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? You know, in in chapter 4, he compared that to bodily training, but I understand that maybe some of us in this room uh, might not value bodily training very high. And so that may sort of not hit so well for you, if you will. Perhaps you would think, well, of course godliness is more valuable than bodily training, but it's not because you value godliness so high, but because you value bodily training so low, right? So I would like this morning to consider some other evaluations as we look at the value of godliness. Let me ask you a few questions, and if you just Take a moment to evaluate your hearts as I ask them Would you rather have more godliness or a raise or promotion at work? Would you rather have more godliness or a bigger house, a better car, more retirement, or to afford for your kids to do more things? Would you rather have more godliness or a better position? or a greater sense of purpose in the church? Would you rather have more godliness or more of your own way in your marriage? Would you rather have more godliness or people to think better of you, to show you more respect? Would you rather have more godliness, even if it meant more sacrifice, more humility, more reproach? more asking for forgiveness, and more work. Well, let me ask again, do we really believe as Paul says, do we really live as Paul says, as if godliness has value in every way? Paul said that our faith in Christ... 1 Timothy 3.16, leads us to particular truths and practices, chapter 4, 1 through 7, if you remember that, and that we must be trained for godliness, chapter 4, verse 8 and following. Having laid out the overarching principles for how to know how we ought to behave in the household of God, Then, in chapter uh, 5, 1 to 6, 2, he gives us three case studies or particular examples that address issues in the Ephesian church. Examples of what godliness or what this practice of Christian religion looks like in the family, in the church, and in the public sphere of life. And he uses the examples of widows and elders and master and slave relationships. And now in our passage today, he begins to bring all of this to a conclusion. You see, what I want you to understand is there is one flow of thought that Paul is giving us. As he says at the end of chapter 3, I want you to know how you are to behave in the household of God. He hasn't been hitting just totally different points. He's been having one consistent flow of thought, developing his ideas as he goes along, and now he's bringing it to a conclusion. Teach and urge these things, he says. These three particular examples, and along with them, the foundational principles that undergird the instruction that he's given about how we ought to relate with widows and with elders and with our masters if we're slaves, right? But why is Paul so emphatic about teaching and urging these things? Immediately we are reminded that there are false teachers, chapter 1. We were told that. He was told to deal with these false teachers. But Paul wants to get to the root issue now. In chapter 1, he said, you've got to deal with these false teachers. And he's gone through all of these things that, that we can do that would be uh, firm supports for the church to build a strong church. And now he's getting down to the root issue. These false teachers carry and spread a disease. But they themselves are not the disease. You may think to yourself, well, as you've been going through First Timothy, you may think to yourself, well, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. I can't be a false teacher because I'm not a teacher. So I'm good, right? Just got to stay away from a few people. It's all good. But pay heed today because you can have this disease. In fact, the reason the false teachers are so effective is because the disease often lies dormant in all of our hearts. It's just waiting to pop up and take us down. And, in fact, you can spread this disease as well, even if you're not a false teacher. This disease is near the center of every pastoral moral failure. Every division in the church Every failure of forgiveness and reconciliation, this disease is at the center of all of your sin. You may think, well, gosh, what is that? Is it this or that thing? Is it this or that sin? But oftentimes... The sins that we name, they're actually just symptoms. They're ungodly symptoms that pop up in your life and in your marriage and in the church. And you can't get rid of them any faster than you can, you know, win at a -a whack-a-mole game, right? You ever played whack-a-mole? It starts out slow, and you're like, oh, I'm getting all these moles. Look at me, I'm so good. And then it starts going faster and faster, and pretty soon you can't get all the moles. You knock one down, and two more pop up. The reason is because there's a disease at the heart, and if that disease isn't taken care of, it's just going to manifest itself in more and more ways. You can apply as many things from the Bible as you want, and you can work harder and harder, but you can't get rid of all the moles. Unless you attack the disease. Let me tell you what the disease is. Make an argument this morning for what the disease is. The disease, my friends, is discontentment. The disease in your heart is discontentment. Discontentment leads false teachers to teach falsely. Discontentment leads people to turn from truth to error. Discontentment leads us to desire things we ought not desire. It leads us to desire good things in ways that are sinful. Discontentment is a disease in our hearts and in our churches. Listen, you cannot have God's truth without the gospel, and you cannot have true godliness without contentment. That's what I want you to understand. You cannot have God's word, God's truth without the gospel, and you cannot have true godliness without contentment. Oh, you can act like it for a long time. You can do a lot of things that outwardly look like you're fine that look like you're a good Christian, that you, you go to church and you say your prayers and you, and you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that and you avoid the sin and you avoid that. But if in your heart there is discontentment, you cannot have true godliness. So I hope to convince you today that the cause of ungodliness, our ungodliness is the disease of discontentment. I hope to show you that the symptoms of that disease, the primary symptoms of that disease are arrogant ambition and selfish gain. And Then I hope to at least get us started on what the cure to that disease is. So the disease of discontentment. Our passage breaks up into two sections, verses 3 to 5, dealing primarily with the false teachers and the effects of that. And then 6 to 10, dealing with uh, uh, the infection in our hearts, in the hearts of each person. So how discontentment affects the life of the church, and then how discontentment infects the heart of the church. We'll look at those two things. How how does discontentment infect the life of the church? In 3 to 5, we have false teachers who teach a different doctrine. This doctrine doesn't agree with the sound or healthy words of Jesus, nor does it accord with uh, what makes for godliness. Verse 3. And so what I want you to understand is it's not a matter of not having the gospel. These false teachers probably had the gospel. They probably would have affirmed what the gospel said, but the doctrine that they taught from that, the truths that they brought out from who, what Christ has done on the cross and his death and burial and resurrection were not centered appropriately on the gospel and were not directed appropriately towards godliness. They didn't teach out from that gospel center towards that godliness. Their teaching makes for ungodliness. Unhealthy cravings, it says, which spread sickness in verse 4. I want you to understand that because these false teachers, oftentimes false teachers, can will affirm Jesus Christ, will affirm His death, his burial, his resurrection, key points in the gospel. And yet, they will deviate from sound doctrine, from how Christ applied those things, how Paul applies those things, because they're discontent. And so it creates, it spreads sickness, it spreads in envy or jealousy, right? Right? You hold a grudge because you want what someone else has. It spreads in the body of the church dissension or strife. You create rivalry for position rather than unity around Christ's kingdom. It spreads in God's body slander and malicious talk. We insult, even lie about one another in order, in order to build ourselves up rather than building one another up. In, it spreads in evil suspicions or conjectures. If insults aren't working, then we make things up. We assume people's motives. We take partial truths and we assume the worst of them, and then we spread that out to other people. All of this ends with constant friction among people, Paul says. I think that's meant to be sort of a a summary, uh, an end point of all of these sicknesses. You've experienced this, right? Anyone who's been in the church, been in a family, been in a relationship with people, period, you've experienced this. How does it spread so easily? You see, I think Paul's point here is that while it might spread easily in all other relational venues, it ought not to spread easily in the church. It not to because we ought to be inoculated to this by the gospel. And yet, we've experienced it in the church often because this disease lies dormant in our hearts. How discontentment infects the heart of the Christian is Paul is what Paul turns to in verses 6 to 10. To those who desire and want to be rich, it says in verse 9. that That bit of discontentment leads them to fall into temptations and snares. They go after what tempts them and what they think is good turns out to be a trap. These temptations and snares are what Paul calls many senseless and harmful desires, or that word could be translated lusts. What they're really desiring here isn't so much dollars and cents as as much as the lusts that they have, and those lusts could be lots of different things. Some lusts are senseless or foolish. You want to look good in front of someone or you want the newest gadget and you want it so much that you're willing to sin for it. It becomes sort of the equivalent of a middle schooler who wants to look cooler, but, but they're a middle schooler, so they're not cool. That's just like a fact of life, right? And so what do they do in order to try to look cooler? Well, I, I want it so bad I'll make that person look stupider so that I can look better because I can't make myself look better. I'll hurt and damage them because if I can't raise myself up, at least I can lower them down. And if I can lower enough people down around me, then maybe I'll be king of the hill. And so we, we want things that maybe aren't inherently bad, but, are just foolish. And, we, and so we pursue them in ways that are wicked. And then there are also uh, harmful desires, things that are harmful in themselves. And there's, no, well, there's almost no end of examples here. I could go on for a long time. I'll just share a few. Uh, pornography, for example. It's not just senseless, it's not just foolish, but it's inherently harmful. It plunges us into ruin and destruction. It starts seemingly small, and it ends in destroying marriages and families and churches. Or how about bitterness? It it isn't just senseless, but it's inherently harmful. It distorts our view of others. It kills all our joy and it justifies slander and gossip. It plunges us into ruin and destruction. So these two sections revolve around the very center of the passage which is the end of verse 5 and verse 6. Paul says there that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. That is, they imagine that Their version of godliness, not true godliness, but this distorted version is a means of gain. These are not people who have rejected Christ, like I said, verbally, nor have they rejected the church, nor have they rejected many Christian practices. In fact, they have a form of, an appearance of godliness, it says in 2 Timothy 2. You may look at them from the outside and you might think, well, they're like a pretty decent Christian. They say a lot of the right things and they do a lot of the right things but they think that they can leverage it how they want in order to profit themselves. Not for true gain. They are what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 2.17, those who peddle the word of God for profit. They're insincere in their faith because they, have, they may say the right things, but they do so for their own desires. Whether that be to gain, themselves some position, like leadership or teaching position in the church, as exampled here, or to gain themselves some sort of monetary or material gain, whatever it is. But Paul here, interestingly, he does not clarify that godliness does not bring gain, does he? You'd expect him to say, oh, you think godliness is is gain, but it's not gain. But that's not what he says, is it? What does he say? He says godliness with contentment isn't just gain, but is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so we discover where the difference lies here, right? They're discontent. That's the disease. And this disease leads them to leverage godliness for ill-gotten gain rather than for the true gain that Paul has described in 1 Timothy 4, eight the gain that is good for this life and for the next life. And this disease has some identifiable symptoms. First, arrogant ambition, and second, selfish gain. Arrogant ambition. Let's look back at verse 4 real quick. The false teachers uh, are led to an unhealthy craving for controversy. The controversy is where they can gain ground, if you will. They put themselves up as teachers, but the plain teaching of God's Word isn't attractive enough to get their following. They need something novel. Everyone's preaching that. Everyone's preaching those truths, those ancient historic truths of Christianity. That's boring. Here, I've got something new for you. It's something interesting. It's something that tickles modern ears. Come follow me. They innovate to give themselves an Edge to string people along to bring themselves glory rather than God. See, their issue is arrogance. They're puffed up, it says, with conceit and understand nothing. Their arrogance includes ignorance. In fact, their arrogance keeps them in ignorance. This is what I want you to understand, that the understanding of nothing is something that comes out of them being puffed up with conceit. It's not what causes them to be puffed up with conceit. One basketball player, let's say, I'll use basketball because I don't know that works for me, hopefully it works for you. One basketball player can be arrogant because he's never played with better players. He's only ever played with guys who can hardly dribble the ball and hardly shoot, you know? His open gym he goes to, is a bunch of schlubs and they enjoy playing basketball and he's the best of the schlubs. He's got no shot, but it's at least better than everyone else and so everyone feeds him the rock, right? He has what we might call ignorant arrogance. He thinks he's awesome because he doesn't realize he's not actually awesome. But the same guy goes to the college gym, right? Where a little higher level of uh, competition plays and he walks in and he still thinks he's a stud, and he can't figure out why no one is passing him the ball. Well, now you have arrogant ignorance. His ignorance blinds him to the plain truth that's all around him, that everyone else is actually far better than he is. That is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about here. It is their being puffed up with conceit, their arrogance that causes them to be blinded and understand nothing. And thus, when it says that they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth in verse 5, this is not fundamentally a problem of needing more information. It's not a problem of needing a better explanation. It's not a problem of a lack of education. It's a heart problem. We have a heart problem. We're prideful. People could tell us all day, you could go to that guy that basketball player, and tell him all day, you're not actually very good at basketball. And he'll say, oh, but but go talk to my buddies down at the other gym. They know how good I am. We become discontent with where God has us. We're filled with arrogant ambition, and we create disunity in the church. And sometimes this becomes very plain, uh, but sometimes people do a really good job of making it look very godly-ish. We can can do a very good job of making this look very godly-ish, let's say. Envy gets disguised as wanting to do more for God's kingdom, when really we're just jockeying for position. Dissension is disguised as concern for the purity of the church. Slander becomes prayer requests and concerns for that person. Evil suspicions is often disguised as concern that that person might be might be being influenced badly by someone else or something along those lines. How does the church fall for all of this so easily? Well, frankly, we fall for it so easily because too many of our hearts are filled with the desire for selfish gain. Our own hearts are discontent. And so we fall for the tricks that come out of the discontentment of others. Their lack of contentment blinds them to two realities in verse 7 and 8, that they came into the world with nothing, and they leave the world with nothing, and that if they have food and clothing, God is taking care of them. Failing to recognize this, we desire to be rich. We desire more things, not necessarily riches themselves. I want you to understand that. But, but because we desire all kinds of things, Paul is saying, That's the problem with this contentment. Enough is never enough. You cheat to get a new position at work. You you know, you just just adjust the numbers slightly, not not a whole lot. You round up in order to get that new position. It's just this one time. It's probably going to be better for the company because I really deserve that position. They might put that guy in that position instead of me, and that guy wouldn't be very good for the company. So really, I'm doing it for the company. This is for the best. But then you get to that position, and suddenly there's another position, and you start to tell yourself, well, I I got away with it last time. We even try to use the gospel as an excuse, and I think that's one of Paul's primary points here. We try to use the gospel as an excuse for this sort of thing. Just because the gospel brings widows into God's family doesn't mean that biological families can neglect their duties. Just because elders work for the gospel doesn't mean that churches can neglect their duty to provide for elders. Just because masters have become believers doesn't mean that slaves can become disrespectful and lazy. You see, Paul, in all of those examples, is pointing out that you can't use the gospel as an excuse for your own selfish ambition. And you do it because your hearts are discontent. Because in reality, you don't get the gospel. Not You might get it up here, but you're not getting it right here. And so in each of those examples, he clarifies both the positional and the provisional issues, both the the arrogant ambition issue and the selfish gain issue in each one of those uh, relationships. And then he brings it all home with our passage today. Here's the problem. Discontent hearts. That's what causes this in the church but money itself isn't the fundamental issue. It it can create unique challenges for the rich, but make no no mistake, you can love money whether you have it or not. When it says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, do not think that the that's a problem only for people who have more money than you. In fact, I think based on... Uh, What Paul is saying here, and the fact that he will soon specifically address those who he calls rich in this world, I think that this section is primarily Paul speaking to those who are not rich in this world. But in their craving for those things that they want, they are quickly following these false teachers and they are wandering from the truth. And they are piercing themselves with many, many pangs. Pangs in their relationships, in their life, in their marriage, in the church. And all of this is because they are seeking and trusting other things. And not Christ. These false teachers and those infected in the church use false godliness in order to get themselves temporal gain, a pursuit that ultimately damns them eternally and harms other people, verse 10. So we know the problem, we know the symptoms. Where can we find the cure? What is the cure for discontentment? Well, in his profound book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs says this. He says that the central truth of Scripture is the gospel, but the central practice of Scripture is contentment. The central truth of, God, of, of, of uh, Scripture is the gospel, but the central practice of Scripture is contentment. The gospel is not all of God's truth, but all of God's truth revolves around and comes out of the gospel, and we could say that contentment isn't all of Christian practice. It's not all of godliness, but all godliness revolves around and comes out of hearts that are content in Christ. This is the essence of verse 6. True godliness is religious practice that has at its core, at its heart, contentment. And that contentment has as its foundation Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. That great hymn that Paul shared back in chapter 3. That's the flow of this entire section. And so the cure for discontentment is not just to say, well, I just got to bear down and be content. But rather, it is faith in Christ that produces contentment. It's faith in Christ that produces contentment in our lives. Contentment is kryptonite to arrogant ambition and selfish gain wherever it can be found, in your relationships, in your family, in your marriage, in the church, in your workplace, everywhere. Everywhere. You can tell yourself all day, well, we just, well, this will be fixed if we just do this, and if we just do this, and if we do th- just do this. But if your heart is still filled with discontentment, you will mess up every single right application of God's word that you can try to do in, in whatever area of your life. You will find a way to warp it and disease it. You will find a way that that right application becomes actually negative in those relationships. Unless your hearts find contentment and, your, and that contentment can only be found by faith in Jesus Christ. So what is contentment? Let me, let me share what contentment is and then let me share a few ways in which we can produce this contentment in our lives. All right. Burroughs defines contentment this way. He's, he calls it the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. Oh, look. My wife put that up there. Thanks, son. The inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. Uh, if, he breaks down every single word in this definition. And I would highly recommend the book, The Mystery, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment to you. It may be a little bit of a slog, but it is worth every single page. It is, it is truly a rare jewel but I'll try to give a little bit of a summary of some parts of it in much of the rest of the content of this sermon is reflections on that book and on this passage together. So let me give credit where credit is due. So it is is an inward frame of spirit, meaning although it will manifest externally, it must start in our heart. You cannot white-knuckle forever refraining from discontent actions. It's not enough to not act in discontent ways, Burroughs says, but your heart, this—the tr- the, the jewel of Christian contentment is that not just that you act content, but that you truly are content. You really are. Our hearts are... St- If our hearts are still overrun with the love of money and cravings for controversies and senseless and harmful desires, then then we lack that rare jewel of of contentment and inevitably it will pour out in our lives, right? And and, and he also says that this, this contentment takes pleasure in whatever condition God gives us. Understand, contentment by its very definition is not dependent on your circumstances, By its very definition, it is not dependent on your circumstances. You can be in the worst situation, and yet you can have contentment in Christ, God's Word says. But it also doesn't ignore our circumstances. It's not pretending that something bad is actually somehow good. In fact, Burroughs says that if you pretend that your crosses aren't actually crosses then you're actually short-circuiting contentment by, being, by trying to be willfully ignorant of how bad your situation is instead of turning to Christ and looking to Him in that situation. Whether, we, whether things are going well or poorly, we, f- we can find joy in what it is, uh, whatever it is whether it's poor, whether things are going poorly or things are going well, we can find joy in whatever our condition is, knowing that God in his love and wisdom put us there for good reason. He's put you in your job. He's put you in your marriage. He's put you with your family. He's put you with your kids. He's put you in your house. He's put you in your car. He's put you in every circumstance that you have for good reason. He is a good and loving father who is sovereign over all things. It is not out of his control. He's put you there because you need it, and you need him in it. We can spend much time uh, we could spend a whole lot of time describing this rare jewel and and that would be a, probably a good practice for us but but I don't I don't uh, I only need to give you a brief description of a million dollars to know that I'd rather be out finding it than having you give me more of a description of what it is, right? And so let me give you. Uh, some four ways that you can actually find this contentment. Four things that can help you to find it, right? Because uh, once you know where the jewel is buried, uh, don't describe the jewel to any, me anymore. Just give me the instructions and let me go get it. I want to see it. I want to hold it. I want to experience it, right? Burrow, Burroughs calls this contentment a mystery. It's a mystery to find this. It's not. I want you to understand it's not some rigid formula. It's not like, well, I just do this and then this happens. That's not how how it works. It's not a rigid formula. In fact, what I want you to understand is if you are in Christ, it is already yours in Christ. Do you understand that, Christian? That contentment in Christ is already yours in Him. And yet, as Burroughs says, you must learn it. It is yours, but you must learn it. Uh, It's like you get a gift, a new tool for Christmas, right? You're like, oh, this is fantastic. I've wanted one of these. Okay, how does it work now? I can't use it until I figure out how it works. So let me give you some ways on how you can make this thing work. Okay. The basic, uh, first, first let, me, let me share this. The basic principle to curing discontentment is this. Look to Christ, not your conditions. That's the basic principle. That's the overarching principle for how how, how to operate this thing. Look to Christ, not your conditions. All right, Four, four ways. Like I said, contentment comes by subtracting desires, not adding to our condition. You need to understand that contentment comes by subtracting desires. Christian contentment comes by subtracting desires, not adding to our condition. Consider the problem in this text. Their lack of contentment uh, was seen first in having desires for wicked things, but also in craving other things, uh, good things, too much. It's not bad to be a teacher or a leader in the church, we're told, but some of these guys have such bad ambition in such arrogance that they pursue it sinfully, that they're willing to distort and lie about God's truth in order to get that position. Rather than fixating on how to get more, we need to repent first of desiring other things before Jesus Christ. Even good things. You need to repent of desiring a good marriage more than you desire Jesus Christ. You need to repent of wanting more money, even for good purposes, more than you want more of Christ. Christ. You need to subtract desires, not add to our condition. We must demote those desires. How do we do this? Well, we look at, we look at our sin and realize that our sin is worse than our condition. You've got to take a minute, take a few minutes if you're me, and look at your sin. And Realize that living in your sin is worse than living in your circumstantial conditions. Your sin is worse than your marriage is bad. Your sin is worse than your bank account is bad. Your sin is worse than your car is bad. Your sin is worse than your house is bad. Your sin is worse than your job is bad. Your sin is worse than all of those things. Your sin is worse. And this puts the outward affliction into perspective. But won't that make me depressed, you might say. Well, won't that just make me depressed? Now I've got bad uh, external circumstances and you're telling me how terrible my heart is. Now everything is bad, Cody. Thanks a lot. Not when you realize that Christ has relieved you of that sinful burden. Not when you realize he has forgiven you of every sin. Not when you realize that he has taken every sin that you've ever committed and he has nailed it on the cross and he has shed his blood for it and he died and he rose from the dead so that you can walk in the newness of life. If he can do this, then how much easier if you trust him with that? How much easier is it to trust him in your affliction? Second, contentment comes by turning temporal evils into eternal benefits. It comes by turning temporal evils into eternal benefits. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out, he says. But true godliness does benefit us in this life. And it does benefit us in the life to come, Paul told us. Thus, our greatest desire and our greatest need is holiness. It is that eternal benefit. It is that godliness that we ought to value above all things, and we ought to want it no matter how it comes to us, even if it comes through affliction. And and, and listen, here's the cool thing about about that. We have it in Christ already. You have it in Christ. He has given us His righteousness for our eternal record, and He has given us His Spirit to transform us right now. If our lack in something actually helps us to grow in holiness, then is it not a better gift from God than if He would have given us prosperity instead? Think about that. If our lack of In some way in this world, our lack of relationship, our our lack of uh, uh, funds, our lack of uh, car, a lack of a better job, or a lack of a better marriage, or a lack of a better family, or a lack of a father, or a lack of a mother, or a lack of whatever. Truly, truly serious temporal evils, let me not discount those things at all, but if our lack of them is something that God uses to produce holiness holiness in us, is that not a better gift than if he would have just given us the temporal goods that we wanted? You see, the world can't understand that. The world can't understand that. Outside of Christ, you can't understand that. If you're struggling to understand that, might I encourage you that you need to look to Christ. It's faith in Christ that you lack. It's faith in Christ that I lack when I struggle to see that. We want to ease our temporal problems. We can't take... We want to ease our temporal problems because we can't take the scalpel of God's good gifts We can't stand that God is surgically removing the disease of discontentment from our lives. We can't, we can't handle the pain of it, and we can't see that the benefit is worth it on the other side. Listen, I was joking about this. We were joking about this a couple weeks ago. I hate throwing up. Does anyone hate throwing up? I, I hate throwing up probably more than a lot of things. Right, right. I hate it. I hate it. Just the act of it, the thought of it. It's just, I, I hate it in every way. But it is true that when I am feeling sick and I throw up, a lot of times I feel relief almost immediately afterwards. Is it not true? And yet I will keep myself from throwing up for hours, suffering, instead of just doing what needs to be done to feel better. That's, that's what we're like with God. He's trying to induce some vomiting to get the nasty crap out of our hearts. And we're just swallowing it down over and over again. Just hurting. And he's like, just let let me do my work. All right. Contentment comes by seeing God's blessing, even in a little, not needing much to recognize it. Can you see God's blessing even in a little? The Lord has given us food and clothing. The Lord has given us food and clothing. The Lord has given us food and clothing. With these we will be content. With these, we'll be content no matter what our bank account is. With these, we'll be content no matter what car problems I have. With these, we'll be content no matter how many projects need to be done around the house. With these, we'll be content no matter how many people at my job are really annoying to me. With these, we'll be content no matter the the issues that we still need to work out in our marriage. With these, we will be content... Because whatever we have comes from God and comes from his love. The quantity of our stuff does not determine the amount of God's love for us. Let me, let me say that again. The quantity of your stuff does not determine the amount of God's love for you. But the amount of his love does determine what we have. And guess what? His love for his children is beyond imagination. The amount of his love does determine what we have, and his love for his children is beyond imagination. So if you think you need more to see God's blessing, then you are not seeing God's love appropriately. You're not seeing it in truth. Because he has an abounding amount of love for you. And so exactly what he's given you is exactly what you need right now. Nothing more, nothing less. And if you say you need more or need less, then you are telling God he does not love you enough. Far be it. The Father sent his one son that we could be his children. Jesus shed his blood that he could be our brother. God prepared for us good works in advance that we might walk in them. Whatever our current condition, we know that it is for our best. And it is precisely what an all-loving God deems good for us right now. Even more than our temporal condition Listen, even more than our temporal condition, he feeds us and he clothes us. He feeds us with his own body and he clothes us with his own righteousness. We do not need to run after senseless and harmful desires which lead us away from faith in Christ, which cause us to doubt because we trust in those things more. Instead, we need to look to Christ in faith so that the desires of our hearts would be transformed by him. And we look and we'd say, oh, this little thing, oh, what a blessing from God. Oh, this little thing, oh, what a blessing from God. Oh, this little thing, what a blessing from God that is, rather than constantly looking at all the things we want that we don't have. All right, the fourth way. Contentment comes by desiring to obey where we are, not working to get what we desire. Contentment comes by desiring to obey right where we are, not working to get what we desire instead. Why does the false teacher teach something other than the sound words of Jesus? He works often with great effort for the gain he desires while seeing obedience to God as too difficult to do. It's not enough to just be obedient to God right where he has me, but I will work so hard to get the thing I desire. I won't do the work of obedience of faith right where God has me, but I'll work super hard to get the thing that I don't have and I desire instead. Does that make any sense? It is not fundamentally an issue of work, but it's an issue of faith. The false teacher trusts in himself. He trusts in his desires to satisfy rather than trusting in Christ and in God's promises to satisfy. The same is true for those who follow their teaching, and those who are swallowed up in the love of money. One person says, I want this, and I can't be content until I work to get there. And another person says, this is where I am. What work would God have me to do here? What are you asking yourself? I want a better job, and I can't be content until I work to get that better job. Or are you asking yourself, Okay, here's where I am. Whether I get that job or not, whether I get that, maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, I don't know. But whether I get it or not, here's where I am. What does God want me to do right here, right now? One person asks, oh, I want a better marriage or a better family, and I can't be content until I work to get that. And however I think that I ought to work to get that, another person says, here I am. What work, God, do you want me to do right here, right now, whatever you want to give me? And guess what? The second person will often get the better marriage and family. The second person will often get the better job. The second person will often get all of those things and godliness thrown in. Where do we find strength to do this work? I want you to understand. I want you to understand the point isn't to get the better job or whatever it is. The The point is we get more of Christ. And so even if, even if we never achieve that thing, even if God never grants that thing, we trust that that's actually better for us, and we can see the blessing of what we have right here and right now, right where we are, and we can be obedient in it. And that change of perspective changes everything. That change of heart changes everything about our life. Where do we find the strength, Paul already told us in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. We must look to Christ. He put us where we are. He saved us by his mercy. He gave us the talents that we have, whether we have one or three or five, and we are to use them for him. If discontentment leads to bad desires, which leads to wandering from the faith. Let's reser- reverse that order. Let us look in faith to Christ, and He will change our desires and lead us to godliness with contentment. And in it, we can find peace, and in it, we can find joy that surpasses any possession or any circumstances or even our own understanding. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Let's pray.